0: Blog Talk Radio. Africa,
1: Africa, 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 the World. Center of Africa, 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 the center of the world. Africa, Africa, the Africa, Africa, Africa. Was the first man Africa, 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 the earth mm mm-hmm.
2: We're going to be in the seat and we're going to take the heat. As we define it, we'll stand behind it. We come to share information where we speak truth to power and to value information so that you can think and expose you to organizations so that they can help you think more clearly. Africa on the Move is an institution that was created for the oppressed sector of the world with, it, with, with its emphasis on the Pan-African Movement. Tonight, our theme we encompass telling our story. What is yours? That's right. We're going to tell our story and we want to know what is yours. And to help us to do this tonight, like always,
0: we're
2: going to start with our party by introducing to you our political panelists and guests for today's program. First, we'd like to bring in Brother Haki and welcome him to Africa
3: on the move. Welcome, Brother Ha-Kee. Uh Brother Africa, <clears throat> thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamati Nishoki, and currently I'm with African Awareness. And of course, you know, my thing is all about institution building. But one of the things, you know, I think is important to bring out, Brother Africa, is that when we talk about the problem of scarcity in society, uh, oftentimes we understand that a scarcity is the direct result. Of a political financial system which is geared toward the enrichment of a few at the expense of the many now i want you to check this out southern man road recently now the chicago mercantile exchange will now sell stock options called futures for water in california these futures allow investors hedge funds equity firms municipalities to bet on water availability availability of water is compromised by climate change droughts population growth and population particularly fracking you no environmental runoff like waste from domestic animals that runs into the water. Now, an analysts say investing in water is good because, one, a transparency or the notion that we know who's buying and selling stocks, or in this particular case, water futures. Or two, price discovery, this whole notion of supply-demand and, and the fact that this particular model provides us with a better, more clarity in terms of who's buying and uh, how much they're buying. But of course, this is only half true. The bottom line is that this notion doesn't take into consideration the kind of manipulation or the corruption that takes place with respect to the financial or investment institutions. Thirdly, risk transfer, and for our purposes, this is very important to understand this. Risk transfer is simply a way of saying both buyer and seller are guaranteed big dividends or returns. Obviously, access to water is life and death. Placing water under the machinations of the marketplace means Many poor people throughout the world will not have access to water in the future simply by virtue of price. Now remember, risk transference means more profitability for corporations, banks, and the wealthy. It ensures large profits, ensures large investor class investments. When put on paper appears, water as a commodity is reaching scarcity in the face of so many investments, thus the increase in the value of water. Simply stated, the more the investment, the higher the cost of water. The real motivations behind the analyst's optimism is the profitability factor and the likelihood this other applied in California will be utilized by other U.S. states and eventually throughout the world to justify poor people not having access to water. Access to water is currently an issue in a small Mississippi town. Water was cut off because the residents' wages do not keep up with the price of water. In all probability, this scenario is likely to play out over and over again for two reasons. First billionaires like T. Boone Pickens are buying freshwater aquifers and lakes. Currently, he owns aquifers providing over 65 billion gallons of water yearly. Putting this in perspective, if, if the average American family uses 250 to 300 gallons per day, 65 billion gallons of water is considerable. Second, if focus focuses on profits, it makes sense to pursue those entities or individuals that can c- supply the biggest return. Recently, a representative of Citigroup stated selling water to fracking companies is great because they require 3 to 5 million gallons of water per venture. He went on to say that they are willing to pay $3,000 per acre foot for water, as opposed to selling water to farmers for just $50 per acre foot for water. And if $50 per acre foot is seen as not profitable, how about a, resident, a, resident, a residential of uh, uh, Residential uh, uh, individuals who would a monthly bill uh, of $120 a month. Now, alternatives to correct water scarcity exist, but the cost, according to capitalists, is prohibitive. For example, desalination plants would cost tens of billions of dollars to build. Costs associated with such a project would entail higher corporate taxes. The name of the game, of course, is the accumulation of capital, so anything that suggests otherwise would fall, probably fall on deaf ears. Now, here's the thing that we got to remember as a community. One of aside from wealthy billionaires like T. Boone Pickens buying uh, fresh water, we also got mega banks also buying fresh water throughout the world. Because I understand just <clears throat> in terms of how banks operate, we all understand the bottom line is, is, is always the dominant force to find in and everything that they do. And so for banks like Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Chase, Barclays Bank, Bank Blackstone, uh, which is an investment firm uh, water is currently a 500 billion dollar a year enterprise and so this notion that they're putting money out there for water uh, means that they're going to pursue that and if they can create a scarcity <clears throat> by utilizing the marketplace to justify high cost of water that's precisely what they do and one way to create the scarcity is that when one thing if you got futures, futures one thing you can do is continue to to repurchase that same contract. So as the prices of that of that contract continue to fall, you continue to buy these contracts. In the process, more and more people begin these contracts. As a result, not only do these contracts become lower, but the but the, the amount the cost or value of water actually rockets. So therefore it's my in my my financial interest to keep on purchasing repurchasing these contracts. I'm not concerned about the value of water as related to poor people. I'm concerned about profitability. And so this is a, a primary concern that we're confronted with as a, as a people, as a humanity, because we got people in positions of power who don't give a damn about humanity, whose sole fixation is about profitability and making as much money as they possibly can They damn the hell with the human life. So this is an issue issue that we're confronted with as, 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 as people, and it's one of the things that we have to understand that this is not going to merely go away simply because we perceive it as simply wrong. We have to understand this is, in fact, how the system works. And if we don't get about the business in terms of, changing that system, destroying that system, if you will, then the bottom line is that we become victims of that same system. And I told you that Brother Africa, and again, thanks for having me.
2: Thank you, Brother Haki. Next we'll go to Brother Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the move.
4: Thank you, thank you, and greetings, Brother Africa. Greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism, From the moment, I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race-secure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Thank you again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show.
2: Thank you, Brother Moses, as always, for your contribution to our program. Next, we will bring in a special guest for today, and His name is Brother Alvin Jackson out of New Orleans. And we'd like to welcome Brother Alvin to Africa on the more. Welcome, Brother Alvin. Tell our people know something about you?
5: Well, well, thanks for having invited me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, speaking about what my, my passion, which is the history of our people, uh, which is a collective history, and uh, I make no bones about that. Uh, I'm the owner, founder of. I would like to say the uh, probably one of the hippest, uh little history of jazz museums in the world. Uh, of course, I've only been to one in Cuba. My and one in New York, but uh, in terms of authenticity and sincerity, I think I rank among whichever one might be out there. And what we do is we share the history of people and how people have collaborated historically to create the sounds of music that we all love today. And that's my focus and my passion predates a lot of
2: this Go ahead, I mean, cut
5: close and Finish your point. No, no. I would just say that it predates a lot of what Eurocentric uh, jazz historians have written and have been writing about. That tends to exclude uh, a lot of the nuances that create, that help to create the sound of jazz. And when when I speak of the sound of jazz, I'm speaking of music outside of a Eurocentric realm that one would find. Uh, not only in Africa, but throughout the Caribbean and Central and South America, of course, here, here in the Oregon as well.
2: All right. What we're going to do for our listen audience, uh, later on during this program, we're going to have a particular special segment where we're going to talk to Brother Alvin about his life, his contribution to humanity, and the things we can learn from it. But right now, what we're going to do is refresh with lack of knowledge our brother to our brother Anthony Williams, who is right there is is, is, is is not feeling well. He's under the weather. He is listening to the program. We'd like to give a shout out to our brother. We also like to remind you that from time to time, uh, we may have some glitches in this program. If um we have that particular problem still, please be patient with us. Uh we will try to resolve it. But it's an issue that we've been trying to work out, but we can't control those mechanisms. So on that note, what we're going to do, we're going to slide our fifth segment, like always, what's going on in your world and the community after we come back from the station break. We're going to listen to some sounds of music of Sweet Liberation. We'll be right back. you listen to Brother Africa and Africa on the Move.
0: So vast, so great, the African When you give the color of life, universal harmony. The earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings.
6: We are do wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. Since our mother gave birth to everyone on earth. So we echo her call. And always walk tall. Because we're hips to the world, so we create black pearls. That everyone can wear. That everyone can share. We can't live in despair. So we shine everywhere. On and on.
1: On and on. On and on.
2: We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the move. I'm Brother Africa. I'll be in the seat and I'll take the heat. What we're going to do right now, uh, we're going to talk a little bit, get on that first segment, What's going on in your world community? But before we do that, there is one response I'd like to uh, raise for all our panelists, analysts, and our guests today. Based on Brother Haki's earlier um, presentation on dealing with this question of privatizing water, I think it's a very important issue that he raised. He raised it in the context of we can see a a continuation of a pattern. Of the capitalist system and its philosophy, in which it's a system based upon imprisoning, slavering the masses of the people. And by that, what I mean is that I believe Marx wants to define this concept of freedom as freedom is having the ability and means to control those necessities for life. Well, if food, water, and shelter is a necessity for life, and you can privatize those necessities. And what you're doing is you're putting an individual in a position to control the rest of the human beings. So in terms of privatizing the water, Brother Hacky, I see it falls along the lines of trying to privatize homes, privatizing the food productions, privatizing the clothing machinery. So all these things we need just should be part of our Human rights to have a human being to um, to survive. They are privatizing it. So when we talk about water, I'd like to uh, know the panelist's um, position on should water be something that any society should allow to be privatized, and if so, why? So, why are you at on this, brother? Brother Hockey, what's your position on that?
3: Should water be, under no circumstances should water be privatized because, like you say, brother Africa, it is in fact a um, uh, the cornerstone of life itself. And so, anytime you're talking about to control the control of water, so as to deny it to individuals, essentially what you're saying is their life is esoteric. You're saying that they don't have a right to exist, and that is fundamentally in conflict in terms of at least what is professed on paper to be the constitution in terms of one's right to live in pursuit of happiness. So clearly, it's, that's that's wrong to pursue that area that, in that way. But one thing we have to keep in mind, Brother African, is since we're talking in the context of capitalism, and then when we talk about things like morality, all those things become expedient. There's no such thing in the context of capitalism or morality. They don't know what that means. So when you talk about morality to the capitalists, they think that you're stupid. They think that you simply don't understand and you're naive or you're, you're sometimes couth. You simply don't understand the nature of, of the way things exist. So clearly for them to create scenarios in which they profit at the expense of others, something that they fundamentally, something that they fundamentally part of the system. And so then you alluded to when you talk about housing and when you talk about health care, you talk about access to education or access to housing. Uh, All of these things, all these things, as far as capital is concerned, are arbitrary. And whereas when you think in terms of human rights, these things should be mandatory. But one of the things that uh, as a people, if if the people in society don't themselves uh, recognize the human right aspect of our existence, then what happens is we essentially acquiesce and we simply support those kind of measures, those capitalist principles, which are domestically opposed to our own survival. And we do so not even recognizing that by supporting a lot of these policies, a lot of these laws, that we uh, we actually give credence to our own destruction. And so we have to simply think about what that means. So in the context of water, one of the things is that anytime you create a situation where across the board that both buyers and sellers are going to profit immensely at expense of the masses of people, then what are you saying? Then you're saying that the worth of those people who have access, you know, to buying and selling the water are prioritized, whereas the concern in terms of the masses of folks is there's no concern at all. Which means, in other words, so if they die, so what? Their their lives are irrelevant anyway. So this is the fundamental problem that we have in terms of in terms of inequality existing in society, and we have to keep in mind that we're very really, really clear. And because we're talking about capitalism when we talk about uh, survival of cities, one thing we also have to understand is that when the constitution when the constitution talks about uh, the minority, they're talking about they're talking about they're talking about white men who are wealthy uh, landowners. They're talking about a small minority group of white men who are very very wealthy. The constitution was designed to protect them. It wasn't designed to protect ethnic minorities. So, a lot of people think that when we look at the Constitution, they're talking about ethnic minorities. Well, the preamble is very clear on that point. The minority, minority they're talking about is the wealthy people. That's what they're talking about. And as such, wealthy people understand that because this is not a democracy, they understand that everything they do, any uh, business uh, any business uh, avenue they, perceive, they, they pursue, is, is geared toward the enrichment of the few at the expense of the many because they understand that the way the Constitution is constructed. Everything should be geared toward the enrichment of a very small number of people, and that's constitutional. Uh, that's constitutionally backed. And so this is what we as a people we have to get to an understanding and, 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 and dissuade ourselves believing this, this nonsense about the Constitution is somehow colorblind and somehow is, 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 it's not about classism, uh, that this stuff this sort of doesn't exist in the Constitution. Of course it's an intimate part of the Constitution. And if we don't understand that, then we fail to take the necessary steps that we need as a people in terms of taking a stand to fight against uh the systematic uh, abuse that inflicted upon us you know across the board on a daily basis so clearly brother africa there, there's no justification on I mean, anybody's in anybody's mind in terms of, unless you're a capitalist justifying people not having access to water so clearly you know and, and as i said before not close with this brother africa one of the things when we talk about the desalination plan in terms of actually creating the technology in terms of taking salt water and removing the salt and make it make it potable make it possible for people to drink that water uh, the technology exists, but the will doesn't exist because, as far as the is concerned, any kind of expenditures that are geared toward the uh, empowerment in many, capitalists as a group are relatively opposed to such measures. So when you talk about creating a situation where all of humanity would would would, uh, would, uh, uh, would, would, would benefit from having access to water. Most capitalists say no, 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 no no, no, no. according to my world, according to how I understand the world, uh, if you're not fit, if, you, if, you, if, if, you, if you're not up to the task, if you're not hardworking, if you're not wealthy, then you have no right to fundamentally to exist. And so, therefore, for me to create a situation, a system, which you have access to clean water, fresh clean water, is something that I don't subscribe to. And this is a fundamental philosophical problem that we're going with in terms of capitalism. And nobody, or, and, and I would dare anybody to call me and defend capitalism, and we'll have that discussion. But I'll close with that.
2: Okay. Brother Moses, your position should water ever be allowed to be privatized? Are you with us, Brother Moses? Why well, waiting for Brother Moses yes, to yes, check?
4: Yes, yes, the phones on me. Yes. Um. Yeah, water. Water free. Um. I believe in in water should be free to the public uh, as a right to the, to people to own nature and and uh use nature in our own the public interest and uh you know the privatization of of, of everything in and the capitalism is a commodity and it's to be bought and sold and to the highest bidders and uh and so that's the unfortunate situation we're faced with uh, uh the the situations like the Flint River and etc uh show that, you know, the capitalists are not concerned for the masses of people and we have to recognize that and we have to take control of the government and and use it in the interests of the people. And uh that's a matter process of getting to that point. Thank you.
2: And hey, let's go to Brother Abbott. Brother Abbott, what is your position? Do you think Water Shall be allowed to be privatized?
5: Well, I'm, I'm, I've listened to the gentleman who brought the subject forward, and, of course, he's, he's well-read on, on the subject matter. Uh, but some of the things which, are, of course, including in his discourse, desalinization, desalinization is nothing new. Desalinization came under the Navy using Navy apparatus to desalinate water to make it possible. We're speaking of 50, maybe 60-year-old technology. My, my question would be to the state panel, what are we doing to ensure that those folk whom we elect to public office, we can hold their feet to the fire to ensure that the public should have access to public water? What are we doing to ensure that the folk whom we send to Washington, D.C. and in various state capitals, have not, and will not become part and parcel to whichever movement. Uh, this, as we speak, in this capitalistic movement, to attempt to buy water from the public body. That that should never happen. We should not allow it to happen. But we we can only control that by voting for people who will have our vested interests, not the interests of the capitalists. We understand that capitalism is great. The Constitution, as as the young man spoke of earlier when the Constitution was conceived and created, we were, by and large, enslaved and had no rights to constitution, constitutional protection. In addition to it, those of us who were quote-unquote free were semi-free and, at best, low rate second-class citizen without the right to vote. So this country was not designed for our comfort and mind. And three or four hundred years later, what, what are we doing, what have we done to guarantee our access to all of that which we as human beings are, are entitled to as creatures of the same maker?
2: Well, panelists, and I'd like to respond to the question Brother Alvin raised, but before you respond, I would like to get throw some other components around this whole concept of, of, of how water view as a tool to be privatized and used against the interests of the people. One of the ways of how one can co-op or privatize something while saying it's privatized can also take place, from my perspective, is through the use of how one can take over the government machinery. For example, if you look at your civic governments um, throughout the various cities and states, one of the things they have been doing for for the past 15, 20, 30 years is they have been going up on their utility costs. Policy of the utility costs is this question of having access to water. Now, in the cities, sometimes these utility costs can be so high, it forces people out of their homes. Not only does it force people out of their homes, but they have built policies where if you cannot get Functioning water, running water in your homes, it now becomes available for your home to be condemned, and therefore you can lose your home, and the state can kick you out and take your home and sell it to somewhere else. All based upon the availability that you don't have the necessary resources to have access to water. So, looking at all of these issues, as well as, it is true when someone saying that in the near future, water will become a commodity where basic walls would be fought over, around nations. For example, many people don't, don't know that one of the reasons why the West, led by the U.S. imperialism, attacked Libya was that they really wanted to have access to their large underground reserve natural water, fresh water, because the world, according to their standards, is running a shortage of fresh water. So we got to pay close attention on this whole question of how uh, this question of, the, of fresh water to be used as a tool to be controlled by a few as the sprints of the most so I add those pieces, pieces to this discussion uh, and what are we doing and is there anything we can do to stop this process of individual privatizing water
1: I yeah,
4: I
5: would I would just like to reiterate my position on this. I I cannot speak for another municipality. I can only speak for my own. And what we have is the New Orleans Sewer and Water Board because you're right in your statement, if if a home no longer has fresh water flowing to and from it, that property can be condemned. Now, uh, to not to go as far as you and by saying the state can confiscate your property and sell it, not in my district. As long as a person who is a homeowner or a property owner pays his or her real estate taxes, that will never happen. That will never happen. Pay your taxes, you're cool with the the city. There is no state tax in, in, in our jurisdiction. The water belongs to the municipality and has always belonged to the municipality and not considered one of the utilities vis-a-vis electricity or Cox Cable or any cable, I should say, uh, access which is, of course, privatized and it didn't have to be that way. The beginning of, of cable, and I'm dating back to the middle 1970s, I'm probably dating myself, cable should have been a community-based, community-driven proposition, but the politicians got involved and saw the money. So it came in privatized, and folk did what they needed to do, and now there are various monopolies in our area. Cox Cable is, has a monopoly on it. But that was a political decision made by politicians for their own self-aggrandizement. But water has been a part of the, the municipal system of this city since its inception in, in in the 1720s. Yeah, the problem, the, 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 speak the, the Are you so, finished about the I, I can't speak for another jurisdiction, but in, in Louisiana, across Louisiana, the, the water is a public belongs to the public and is controlled by a public body, and the public body cannot sell anything without the vote of the people.
3: Well, here's, 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 a, here's a problem, Brother Alvin, with, with, your, with, with your analysis. One thing is that when, you, when you're in a house and you don't have access to clean, fresh water, the problem is it could lead to all kinds of diseases. And so in that context, potentially you're a threat to the entire community. So just as just as, as a political body, one of the things you have a responsibility, you have a responsibility to, your, to, to the community. And so, therefore, if this there's, is if there's a definitive threat in terms of this person living in a household which is, which is, which is, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, in disrepute, a disrepair, uh, and that is threatened the health of the of the community, then if you don't get them in terms of a particular statute that's relate to, you know, uh, how you deal with a situation where people don't have fresh water, you're always going to go the mental health route and say that listen, uh, obviously there's some problems in the individual, so based based upon this, we got to get them out there. So there many, many avenues the city and state can resort to in terms of getting people out of their homes. So don't be too, too, too confident. You know, that can never happen in New Orleans, because I can tell you, definitively, that will happen in New Orleans, and it's going to happen in New Orleans, and you, and you'll see. For, I mean, in the near future, you'll see that. But anyway, then, my, my thing is, let me just respond to some brother, brother, brother uh, Africa said. Uh, you know, one of the things. Um, you know, um, and I don't want to repeat myself, but but one of the things, brother Africa, you know, when you know when. You know, you know, this question in terms of expediency, I, I think it's important that we understand that people can almost justify anything under any circumstances. And one of the things is that when you elevate individualism to a level in which you know, um which implies somehow that others don't exist, that the only their only existence is your own, then fundamentally you create a, a, a mindset which says that you can justify almost anything as long as you benefit personally. So it seems to me that capitalism is the, the epitome in terms of elevating individualism, and so therefore, it's very easy for people to to engage in practices, uh, economic practices, which say that well, listen, in order for me to to, to, provide, to pay huge dividends to my shareholders, then what I, or my or my stakeholders, what I got to do, I got to simply raise prices. It then becomes a question in terms of how do I raise these prices? These, these prices, and so you come in these legitimate schemes, these very convoluted, con, excuse me, convoluted schemes in terms of creating ways to justify more 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 money, you know, for your stake for your shareholders. Uh, and, and of course we see this as it being justifiable. But often what we don't understand is that in the context of making it making it possible for a few a very small number of the population to financially benefit, we do a great disservice to a overwhelming number of people. And what has to happen is that the overwhelming number of people have to have to begin to understand that we're in this together and we got poor people got to stop fighting poor people and get to understand that this is this, this constant threat. This direction against us is is, is uh, impacts all of us and not just some of us. And so we have to become to understand that. Now to Alvin's point in terms of when he talked about you know leadership and and leadership in, in, in Congress in terms of you know preventing these kind of things from happening, the problem is that the problem is it's one of, of corruption. I mean, by and large, a lot of these people going into to Washington D.C. They do so because they understand not only there's a certain amount of status associated with serving in Washington, D.C., but also the opportunity actually to capitalize in terms of making money. So you don't make money by, by rocking the boat. You make money by playing ball. And so recently, the so-called Democrats, and I, I could never understand this, the so-called Democrats just voted seven hundred fifteen billion billion for more war. So every year, seven hundred fifteen billion billion is allocated for military expenditures for more war. These are Democrats. These are not Republicans. These are Democrats. So on that level, if, if these same Democrats can't understand that that $750 billion to be used for the good of the communities, how can you get them to understand that things like in terms of privatization of water, uh, things like uh, people not having access to homes, um, people not having access to education, uh, people not having access to jobs, how can we get them to understand those things prior to those things of necessity? The chances are they, they understand it's a necessity, but it's not in their interest because there's no money are associated with actually standing up and fighting the system. So let's be clear on this. So the people that we send in positions of power with to Washington, D.C. are not people revolutionary. These people, are, these people are traditionalists in its, in its, most, in its, in its sincerest form. They're not thought-blocking no vote. They're not going to do anything that's going to antagonize with the positions of power. AOC is the only person in, 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 in an impressionable body of that that up and stands up and speaks on behalf of the masses of people in terms of aspirations and needs. She's the only one why is she the only one why is she the only democrat doing that so ideally it's good to talk about that our our, our representatives should be representative of our needs and interests and aspirations but the bottom line is that we know better than that unless we as a community can can facilitate a situation in our communities which we have the most the most uh, committed the most principled the most honest people to run for office then what we get is more the same and this is the fundamental problem that we've got so we can't really expect as it currently exists those corrupt individuals who seek power, you know, to, to, to get in positions of power and then to do things to undermine or the, the thing that they value most, which is the pursuit of power. So let's be clear about that. So I'll close with that.
5: Well, and I don't disagree with that, what you said, but also let's be clear about something that you said as well, that those folks are indifferent themselves once they're there. But when we look at, forget about the other folks, let's talk about the, the, the black legislative caucus. When, when we look at these guys who are boasting about being career politicians, having 10, 15, 20-plus years in the House, not very many in the Senate, but in the House, and we collectively, not, not individually, we collectively continue to reelect them without any serious opposition, is akin to when you continue to do the same thing the same way, ad infinitum, and expect different results. Somebody's crazy. So I think we should look at the mirror first and, and ask ourselves, if I'm that much concerned about clean, potable water and don't want to risk the, the, the chance of losing, ac- losing access to it, and these guys who've been sitting around for 10, 15, 20, even four years in the House, two terms, and they're not protected by interest, why am I voting for you again? What is, what, what could that, what would motivate me to continue to send a person who does not have my vested interest back to Washington D.C. or to the state capital or to a local city council or
3: county board?
5: We, we have to look in the mirror and ask ourselves.
1: brother,
3: Alvin, you, you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. that's my point I'm making. That if in fact if we if we create a process and communion which we identify the most principled, the most honest, the most the most uh, uh, the most people, the most integrity in terms of these offices, then they go to these offices to represent the masses of people interests. But right now that doesn't exist. Right now people are conditioned to believe that simply just being a part of the process is is, is all that you need. It's is all that you need. And so the, and it also then you got this the political machinery which says. That certain people, given your background, can never run for office because you're not get any financial support or political support or any other support otherwise. Because they understand you represent a, 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 a threat to their interests, and so therefore, this is the, is the fundamental problem that we're confronted with. So our people can continue to elect the same people over and over again simply because they believe that, in fact, that the best chance of bringing about the change is to continue to send those people back to Washington, not understanding that it's all part of a game. But uh, but how you educate people to get people to understand that it's all part of a game. Uh, and once they understand it's all part of a the game, then realistically we can begin to create a, a process by which we identify people who are principled, people who are honest, people with integrity to go to Washington who we know are going to fight uh, for the masses of people. So, we, have, so we, 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 we increase the number of AOCs that exist in Congress uh, who, are, who are fighting for our interests, even though understanding that fighting for our interests is not easy because you've got an established body who are diametrically opposed to the interests that that uh, benefits the masses of people. But you have to have that consciousness in the community in order to, in order to understand that. Most of our people don't understand that. So this is why they keep keep fighting keep keep uh keep sending the same people back over and over and over again, not realizing you know that you're being duped. So but this is part of the process, this is part of the struggle. So this is and we agree with you, and this is what we're trying to fight. And the way we fight that is to get people to start thinking about realistically what's going on. Because the stuff that we talk about on the move, most programs don't talk about. We actually talk about stuff that, that people need to know. Not that, not that the savage media even talks about. We talk about stuff that people stuff that people need to know. They may resent it, or they might reject it, or they might feel uncomfortable about receiving it. But we talk about the information that people need in terms of self-empowerment. Self and you, your point is absolutely correct. We do bear some responsibility in terms of, in terms of the problem that we're confronted with because we keep on playing playing that same game, as you said, understanding you know that uh, by playing the same game, you know uh, all we're doing is just, you know, uh, attempting to make sense of something that's nonsensical. And you, and you're absolutely correct. So, well, I agree with you to a wholehearted, brother, Alvin.
0: It, it's our Tell
5: responsibility Moses. to get the next generation to become fighters, warriors for their own cause. And if we fail to do that, we're we're all in trouble. Brother
2: Moses, jump on there? Give me your thoughts. Well, how can we make sure we create the condition where um, people who claim to represent us, politicians, act on their behalf?
4: Well, obviously, you know, we need to we need people in office who are looking out for our interests, um, and that, that's uh, easier said than done because a lot of people who are conscious recognize that the system is corrupt, and uh, and. So they're not really running for office um revolution is the only solution and and you know it's a matter of organizing getting organized and uh, and uh getting to to where we we can uh actually vote in uh the people who 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 recognize our needs um but you know. I'm looking for for organization, a revolutionary organization that's that's willing to to uh, sweep away this whole bureaucratic, institutionalized racist system and institute another system and how to get that in how to get that ball rolling and how to get people organized around that is is a lot easier said than done. But that's the bottom line. Uh, we need a revolution. Thank you.
2: You know, um, panelists and guests, before we move on, listening to your conversation, one may arrive at the position of we got to be careful not blaming the victims for their own problems. Uh, one may argue yes, that the people may the people do have some responsibility to fight for their own self-interest. But at the same time, because they found themselves in a particular predicament that may have not or has not been of their own doing, you know, a lot of times the enemy, you know, do put them in a box where they victimize them and make us look like we are the reason for our own oppression. Um, Y'all respond to that that, that scenario? Because we know that when we're talking about fighting an organized system, organized methodologies where people constantly set up structures and processes and have access to resources where others do not. They can create all kinds of conditions and have advantages that will cause a people to act irresponsible, not only act irresponsible, but actually act out in a way against their own self-interest. So when we're talking about the so-called victims, we we must always look at uh, those forces, outside of this process and how they influence uh, um the people. Y'all respond to that general um, I just raised.
3: I, 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 go ahead, brother. I agree I agree, I agree, brother Africa You're you're you absolutely correct. Uh one of the things which is important to understand is that one of the things we keep reiterating over and over again is that you we're at war. And when we say we're at war, a lot of people stress their head, like, what the hell are you talking about? We're at war because they don't see the war. Their position is that I'm a U.S. citizen, and so, therefore, everything that goes on in the U.S. Is to benefit, my benefit is because we're part of a nation, and so, therefore, I support whatever goes on in the nation. Not understanding that when you start talking about institutions, particular institutions of in the nation, when you start talking about in terms of collective power, when you start talking about in terms of uh, 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 blocked opportunities that impact certain communities, then you get a sense that you're at war. And a lot of our people don't understand at war. And the reason why they don't understand at war is because of the role of propaganda and social conditioning. And the two go hand in hand. So when we talk about propaganda and we talk about this information that, that that's constantly being fed. Of course people can come to the realization that is another reality. If you really think that for instance, if you think the color of your skin determines your intelligence, then it's very difficult to get at that to get people to understand that that's naive. But where did they get that notion that the color of skin defines one's intelligence? Television. Maybe school, or maybe from, even from their community, from each other. So, you, so, so this, is, this is a role in terms of propaganda, in terms of the ability to shape how people see the world, how they see themselves. I remember talking to one young brother, uh, you know, when I used to, uh, when I used to work uh, way, way back in the day at a youth prison. And I'm talking to the young brother. And I'm saying, young brother, do you realize, and I took him to the, to the blackboard and I explained to him, listen, all right, here's the statistics in terms of what's going on in terms of young brothers killing each other. If you persist in killing each uh, other, look, this is over a five-year period of time, a two-year period of time, a 15-year period of time, this is how many, people, how many African people you have killed. But the young brother's response was, I don't give a damn. I don't care. Because I understand what he's coming from, because he's coming from the anger and all the neglect that he felt as, as, you know, as, as a black youth growing up in very difficult circumstances. And so for the anger that he feels, it's justifiable in his mind. So I can't blame him for feeling that way. I understand why he feels that way. And as such, when we look at the general community in terms of the kind of self-destructive things that we do, we understand that there's a material basis behind why people behave the way they behave. Nobody nobody, uh, uh, nobody wants, you know, to be a thug simply because it's fashionable. People condition, or speech, People call themselves a thug because they think to give them somewhat of credibility, somewhat of status, somewhat of a sense of I am somebody. And so, therefore, it's better to be uh, a negative somebody than a than a than a, than a nobody. And so therefore, you know, we, we you're absolutely correct. And this is the thing that our people have to understand. It's a very difficult thing to get to understand. I many, many discussions I had with brothers about listen, you know, about, you know, in terms of social conditioning, how impact we our people think. And they keep on a personal responsibility. But you know who else has personal responsibility? Conservatives. They always have personal responsibility. You know why they say a personal responsibility? Because it alleviates them from any kind inter- of any type, uh, type of analysis in terms of how the system works. And so, therefore, it's not in their interest to look at how the system works. They understand how the system works. Most of these Republican politicians, they understand how the system works. They know fundamentally disadvantaged African people or poor people generally. They understand that, but they benefit from that same system. So it's not in their interest to to, to, to deal in terms of uh, uh, propaganda, dealing with social conditioning in terms of how it impacts the people. But it's incumbent upon our people you know, uh, to understand the nature of social conditioning. It's a very difficult thing to do. When you go to a church and you try to get people to understand social conditioning, it's a very difficult concept for them to get. It's called socialization, and you try to get them to understand it. It's, just, it's a very difficult concept to get. I don't know why, but it is a very difficult concept to get. I'd like to hear is a lot of this personal responsibility stuff, and they totally missed the boat in terms of when you look at the behaviors of people, the question is why. You know why? You know why, is, you know why you know why why does the sister behave in such a way which is totally uh, unbecoming of a of a, of, a, of a of a queen? Why does she behave that way? Well, it's social conditioning. It's so she she doesn't even understand like, why she does, what she does. She does. What she does because she thinks it's natural. And the question again becomes, where does she get that information from to make her think that she act like that? And when you talk about acting out, you're absolutely correct, brother Africa. You can oppress the press of people for over 400 years and not think that anger is not going to manifest itself. Of course it's going to manifest itself. The question for us is to give, understand that reality, what are we going to do as a people in terms of safeguarding to sort of uh, negate those, those, those factors that bring the anger out of us? That calls for thought. We have to actually think about what, what that means in terms of socialization and how do institutions operate. This is the more difficult part. So this is why we try to get people, you know, people who are conscious, people who say they're conscious, people who understand the nature of the beast, Try to, try to come together and say, listen, we have to create certain institutions, certain, uh, 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 certain uh, 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 outlets in the community to try to combat that. And one last thing, Brother African, I'll close with this, our children. Now, one thing we've got to understand, there's questions from socialization in terms of this notion in terms of intelligence, and our kids get to look at television, and they constantly seeing these, these white kids being presented as somehow amicable, you know, intelligent, uh, you know, uh, easygoing, laid-backs, blah, 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 blah. And then you, get, then you contrast that with a lot of these, the, the African movies in which, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the, 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 the young people are characterized as hard, cold, indifferent, you know, uncaring about education. So these kind of stereotypes, these kind of perceptions get picked up by our, our young people. The question is, what are we as a community going to do to make sure our children don't pick that up? We can't do it individually because most people tell you I don't care about other people's children, I only care about my children. Again, that is part of the conditioning. We think individualistically. That is part of the conditioning. And this is all the stuff that we're trying to combat. But it, it, and so it, I, I don't really expect most people to understand what the hell I'm talking about when I talk about social, uh, socialization. But there are those in the community who understand damn well what I'm talking about. So it's to come upon those individuals in the community who understand the nature of this conditioning to create conditions, institutions to combat the socialization or those, those social values what negatively impacts us. So we have to think about what it is that's going on. And it's a very difficult thing to do because, after all, most it's about people in the church, and I don't want to be, jump on the church because the church is not the only religious institution that's just, that, that does things that are maybe not the most effective. But clearly, when you start well, in the church and you start talking about individualism, and your know, one-to-one relationship with the creator and that, that all that matters, then you don't have room in terms of uh, concern or compassion for others. See, others' relationship in the mind of a lot of these Christians is based upon their relationship with their creator. And so, therefore, my nation, my creator, is totally separate. And so, therefore, I don't care about what you do or, or, or what happens to you. That's not my concern. My concern is only about me, and that is part of the conditioning. We're conditioned to think like that. In fact, the Christian church was created solely for that purpose to create that kind of conditioning in us. So this stuff gets deep, but we have to think about it, and we have to talk about it, and we have to challenge this. And because I remember one time as young, know, I, I know I said, I'm going to close. One, one last thing about Africa. I remember as a kid growing up, you know what? I only liked uh, light-skinned light girls. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to keep it 100. I'm going to keep it real. I only like light-skinned girls. Hell, I didn't know. I didn't know. Hey, I, I thought it was just natural. I thought, that, hey, light-skinned, light well, they're they, they prettier. They're more intelligent. Uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're preferable. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about, light-skinned girl. It's all around me. That's all I see. So I, I assume that what I thought was natural. It wasn't until I was in it wasn't in, uh, into junior high school that I began to realize how foolish I was in terms of my perception, in terms of in terms of my relationship with, with females in the community. I had no clue. I had internalized a lot of self hatred. Have internalized the notion in terms of being close to white being close to white is right. I had internalized that, not even understanding. I had internalized that. Nobody stopped and said to me, uh, you know, hey man, well, what what with all the light women? I have never seen you with a with a with a, with a, with a dark skin sister. So what is what is up with that? Nobody ever took the time to talk to me and say, hey, make me think about what I was doing. Because I was just born through life. I thought I was just doing what was natural. It was conditioning. And I say, I I was infected by that, you know, as a young man. I grew up with that mentality. I'm not going to pretend like I didn't. I did. Now, I know better. But it took years of study, years of understanding, looking at institutions and questioning institutions and understanding, you know, what it is I was responding to. I had no clue. Nobody pulled me to the side, well, years later, my sister said, oh, by the way, you know, when you were younger, you only dated light-skinned women, light-skinned girls. I said, yeah, well, I, I, at that time, yeah, I did. I, I, did, I did. You know, I didn't, you know, I, you listen, I, I thought I was doing what was right. But nobody pulled me to the side and say, listen, man, you know, you need to really check yourself because this, this notion is that you only, you're about past 10 beautiful sisters who are dark, and but you go for one who, who's light, who's average. So why, 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 do, you, why, do, you, why do you do that? Nobody ever proven them aside and say, hey, man, you need to check your mentality. Nobody did that because the people who – most people around me didn't understand the role of conditioning. They didn't understand socialization. They didn't understand the role of propaganda in terms of how it impacts the way people think, particularly, Africa. particularly you know, uh, um, um, you know uh, people – well, not just poor people, but people across the board. So I told say about Africa. I'm sorry for, taking, for talking so much, man, but uh, I just appreciate the question. Thank you.
2: Let
5: me just drop my two cents and respond to the brother and his his desire for light-skinned girls. If the light-skinned girls didn't like chocolate brothers, you would have been out of luck.
1: <laughs>
3: All right? Uh, one more time, brother. Say one more time. If
5: the light-skinned girls did not like brown-skinned brothers, you would have been out of luck.
3: That's true. The truth is because, sisters were less because, because, because you right. like girl
5: does not necessarily equate into them liking you. So it was, it was reciprocal. And that's part of the problem we've had of the people. Oh, that brother's high y'all are struck. Well, if the high you didn't like chocolate, it wouldn't happened anyway. But then we focus on the wrong thing. There are many of us who are lighter than our great-great-great-grandparents who came in various conditions. But we keep buying into the rhetoric of the man who produced initially the beginning of a multicolor layer of our society, and we're buying into that rhetoric of self-hate. How can you create something or give rise to something and then tell me you need to hate your grandma? Excuse me? I gotta hate my grandma because you knocked up my mama. So it goes as you so, socially speaking. I, I'm with you, but the social side of the strata is so deep. We really need to think about what we're talking about. When 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 we can speak of, and again I I, I stay in my lane in Louisiana. When we are able to speak of light, bright, damn near white in 1785, and this is 2020. Somebody's been sleeping white for a hell of a long time before we were out of slavery. And two black folk can create an albino, but they cannot create what we consider as being a European type of humanoid. We cannot, educate ourselves, you see two, two black persons can create an albino devoid of melanin. You've never seen two black people, black in terms of real pigmentation, create what's considered to be a mulatto, which is a half mule based on the Spanish side of it, but a person who's 50-50 or a quadroon, which is one-quarter African and three-quarters European. You've got to have the two different species in order to create that. But we let the same people who created and assisted us in further creation tell us that that was wrong. We keep buying into their rhetoric about who we are and who we've become.
1: All right, yeah, yeah,
3: well, yeah, let me just, real quickly, anthropologically uh, speaking, uh, I, I, don't quite, I don't quite agree with your analysis. I hear what you're saying, but here's the problem in terms of your analysis. One of the things, anthropologically speaking, when you talk about the origin of human beings and Africans going to different parts of the world, those same Africans, those hominids who moved to different parts of the world uh, end up looking differently. Um, Sometimes they had the same features, but certainly their skin color changed according to the conditions they lived under. So, exactly. but at about, so at the heart uh, of it, you're talking about so so at the heart of it, you're talking about African and, and, and African and African, Af, essentially what you're talking about is African DNA disseminated throughout the world, and so therefore, uh, so I'm sort of uh, I'm, I'm sort of hot. I hear what you're saying, but I just want to set the record straight. When we talk about in terms of the in terms of the the the, the originality of human beings, the connection between human beings, we got to understand that the connection goes back right to Africa. So if I'm wrong, you can correct me, and I'll close with that.
5: I I never tell a man that he is wrong. I just say we should take a look at at what we're talking about. When we look at, at the African diaspora, and I would like for us to consider what we speak about relative to this conversation of those folk us who are of African ancestry living in the United States of America and or the Caribbean, Central, South America, Mexico, Philippines that we can put our finger on where Europeans are are, are known to have removed us from one spot to another, just as West Africans during the 600s to the 1400s colonized Southern Europe. That's from Naples across to Portugal. So we've been akin to each other for a long time from a miscegenated anthropological speaker, from a miscegenated perspective. And again, I make my point again. Two Congolese can make an albino, but they cannot make a, a bulato, which is not a good word, but a half-breed person, and that person can make a quadroon, which is a quarter African person, nor an octoroon, which is a one-eighth African person. You need another species in order for that to happen. That's the point I was trying to make. So we speak of light-skinned, dark skin, light-skinned sister, light-skinned brother. It begs a question. If we look at some of our folk today in American politics who have mixed ancestry and identify as black, some of those people coming in from Central South America, not the Caribbean as such, would be considered white. Whereas in, 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 my, in my state, in Louisiana, they'd be considered Afro-Creoles. Because we know the history, for coming from another another geographical region, coming into America, they're considered white. It's not some. It's more than semantics. It's a state of mind.
3: Let me, let me ask you this, brother uh, brother Alvin. Uh, so, what what do you, what do you say about uh, those individuals say in, in Indonesia or the Philip in the Philippines, Indonesia, Philippines, or China? or who are very dark, could look African. What, what, what you, so what would you say about them?
5: Some of those folk, if you look at that from, a, from, a, from an anthropological perspective, I'm, I'm going to remove the Philippines for a quick second, if you don't mind, and go to China, to uh, Laos, Thailand, that whole Burma Trail. Those folk are African. If you go to the island off the coast of India and look at those folk, there are less than 800 of them still surviving today. They're Bantu, but those are the indigenous people of what we call today India. You find some of the same folk in China as well. History has not served us well by keeping us away from the real history of our people as opposed to being stuck with only Western civilization, and that, and that has its problem as well because in Western civilization, it has been said and is still being said, Don't go back beyond 400 years Because when you go back Beyond 400 years We're now speaking of the Moors From West Africa Who have colonized Spain and Portugal And southern Italy And and Sicily from from Hannibal From from the, the, the Carthaginians. They don't want to go back that far Because that's where their blood began Mixed with our blood And we were the colonizers Not them
3: yeah, well now 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 we're beginning to, now we're beginning to connect. I'm glad to hear you say that. But anyway, let me ask just one final thing. What do you think about Italians uh, or Greeks who 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 are dark? Um, what do you think about them? How would you define them?
5: <laughs> the colors, man, come on. I don't know about where you guys live, but but Italians and Greeks and Turks and those folk of color and in Louisiana, particularly in New Orleans, were not considered white. They didn't have to attend school with us for the damn show because they were white folk. And the same thing applies in Europe. You would find a person from the same region which you just mentioned, leaving after leaving Southern Europe, moving into the central northern part of Europe, they were known as, oh, they're from the south. Well, where's the south? It's the, it's the Mediterranean. Well, where's the Mediterranean? That's North Africa. They were not called the N-word, because that is not how folks spoke, but it was understood, clearly understood, that they were mixed ancestry. And that has been happening for eons. Let me, let me give you something yes. out of the Torah and the Bible right, right quick. When Assyrians were tempted to annihilate the Jews, and this, again, is you'll find in the Torah as well as kings in the, in the Bible, the bowmen is which what that nickname was? The Bowman from Nubia destroyed the Assyrians to save the Jews. Nobody talks about that. This is
3: before Christ. I got you. I got Monster you. My, century, my, my my But but, but, but did this, Monster Monster initial premise, in the initial
5: premise. Left from, from 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 the kingdom of Ghana, who was the richest man in the world according to history. Mansa Musa, and travel from his kingdom across Africa, Mali, Timbuktu, the University of Timbuktu, seventh century A.D. in Africa. There's no university in Europe then. Through Egypt, across the Red Sea, with his caravan. If I've got all this gold with me, you know somebody's daughter's hanging out with me and my men. So. We don't get the history from our, from the perspective which says you guys are once a bad brothers. Yet we're getting it on another side that says we were not so good brothers,
3: which is crap. Well, yeah, brother Alvin, if you go back and listen to the uh, to the um, archives of Afcon the Move, we talked about it in depth. Everything you talk about, we talked about in depth. Okay. So we don't we don't we don't talk about. Uh, uh, history superficially. If we can talk about it, we talk about it in depth. So if you want to go back this and check out my, the icons, this is my first time. We talk, we talk, yeah, yeah I understand. All. But if you want to, oh, okay. you talk, all the things you're saying is all the things you're saying is correct. I just wanted to make sure that we were on the same page in terms of the African DNA that exists throughout the world. That's all.
5: Oh yeah. For, now the Philippines, and, the Philippines, the Spaniards call them negritos. And I would ask any one of you guys, the next time you speak with a Philippine, a Filipino, a Filipina, just say, hey, man, or, hey, lady, tell me about the, about the negritos. You will stop them in their tracks, and they will look at you. Have you been to the Philippines before? How do you know about that? Because we don't talk about them. That's real stuff, even today as we speak. And we cannot forget the fact that the Spaniards took some of those negritos into Acapulco region, Pacific side of Mexico, which is where their bloodline still is. You go and see the biggest afros on those heads of those Indians. It makes you wonder, where the hell am I? You know, just you know, when you travel, you meet folk from all over, and you see things that that makes you study and research.
2: And on that note, gentlemen, we're going to pause for the calls. We're going to take a break listen to some music of liberation when we come back we will continue to discuss under the segment what's going on in your world and the community and for those who are listening you can join us at dialing at 323-679-0841 we're going to talk about what's going on in your world and the community when we come back you listen to brother africa and africa on the move And our theme tonight is Telling Our Story and What's Yours. We'll be right back.
7: You come from Portland, and if you come from Westmoreland, you're an African. So don't care where you come from, as long as you're a black man, you're an African. No mind your nationality, I've the identity of an African.
1: And if you come from
6: But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death has spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral hollow, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word, called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods
1: yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My journey is... We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. I'm Brother Africa, your host tonight. We're in the city and we're taking the heat. As we define it, we're going to stand behind it. Right now, we can go to our political panelists, analysts, and our special guest, uh, Brother Alvin Jackson, today. We're going to talk about what's going on in your world and the community. Right now, we start out with Brother Haki. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world and the community?
3: Well, Brother Africa, I'm going to depart from the uh, normal, serious uh, discourse and do something I think a lot of people find, probably find trivial, but I thought it was interesting nonetheless. But anyway, recently, uh, uh, the Security, Security Chief of Space in Israel, Haim Eshade, he alleges uh, aliens from a galactic federation have been in contact with U.S. and Israel officials for years. He went on to say that they signed a contract to do experiments on Earth. And it got me wondering, because when I think about all the people who are missing on a yearly basis, you know, in the, in the U.S. and throughout the world, it got me wondering. But one of the things that's interesting in terms of this whole question, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, alien life here on Earth, uh, one of the things, you know, um, back, in 16, back in the 50s, uh, the National Archives, the audiovisual department, uh, had a tape on a General John Sanford, and this was in 1952 now. And he was talking about the Amish investigation of flying discs. So far back in the 50s, uh, people were aware that there were uh, spaceships uh, from, other, uh, 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 from other places. Also, uh, in the same archives, uh, it talks about the NASA transcripts with the uh, Gemini 7th uh, um, project. And that includes the astronauts, uh, Frank Borman and Jim Lovell, uh, when they was circling the Earth. They viewed a, a, a UFO, um, and it was sur- surrounded by tiny uh, uh, light particles. And that was very interesting. Also, one of the things it, ex- it exposed, also that ex-Congressperson, Gerald Ford, who was, who was uh, a place president, after Nixon was, uh, after Nixon left office. back in '66, he proposed Congress to investigate UFO sightings in Michigan. Apparently, he felt there were so many sightings in Michigan that it warrant a congressional investigation in terms of UFOs. Now what is interesting about Africa is back in '69, they changed the UFO designation to the unidentified area phenomenon, UAP. I thought that very, very interesting. Now, under Project Blue Book, the Air Force investigated over 1,200 UFO reports. And and what is interesting is that 1,200 reports is a lot of, you know, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, just in terms of reporting. Uh, It seems to me 1,200 reports has to be taken seriously. I can't simply dismiss this as, you know, as people being crazy or, or people exaggerating or whatever. That seems to me that on some level it has to have some credibility. But in any event, the New York Times reported um, this was also back in '69 that the bigger aerospace indus- uh, industry stored materials from unidentified aerial phenomena as part of the Pentagon's Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. That was very very interesting. But it goes further back, brother Africa. In 1947, a major of uh, the uh, major uh, in the army, Major Jesse Marcel Marcel, intelligence officer, went to the ranch in Waswell, New Mexico, to recover wreckage of a UFO. And the wreckage, according to, uh, to, to Major Marcel, was taken to the, uh, the military base in Nevada, which is currently called Area 51. Now, Lieutenant Walter Hall, Hart, on his dying bed, admitted that this denial of UFOs was a cover; that in fact they do exist. He said, not only do they exist in terms of you know when they when they gathered the wreckage and uh, and uh, Roswell, New Mexico. He also talked about the fact that alien bodies. Uh, were recovered. And this was corroborated by an undertaker by the name of Glenn Davis, who was requisitioned by the military and a military base there uh, for uh, child sized coffins. So it's all very, very interesting. So I said it to say that, you know, one of the things I'm concerned about is that if in fact they do exist, one of the problems I have with it, when you look at the history of America, uh, of the United States, of uh, well, the history of the world, and you look at one force close to another part of the world, you know, uh, under the guise of friendship and turning turn against the people, murdering them and taking their land, I'm concerned that what's the possibility in terms of people from another planet who may be much more technologically advanced do the same thing in terms of you know in terms of the US. So anyway something something to ponder, something to think about, so I just thought it was interesting. So I just I just thought I I bring it up on the show.
2: All right, thank you brother Hackey. Next brother Moses, we come to you. What's going on in your world and the community?
4: Well, it's been an interesting week um, um, I think, you know, we've the Donald Trump is still in denial uh, But things are moving along uh, In terms of transition to a new administration uh, We look forward to people being in the streets And uh, demanding justice No justice, no peace And... Uh, no, we, uh, this, this is, uh, Africa on the move, and, uh, the Africans are on the move. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Brother Moses. And we're going to our special guest today, Brother Abby Jackson, who is a community organizer. We're going to ask him what's going on in his world in the community. Brother Abby, talk to us. Yep. Well,
5: I I, I am I am no longer a community organizer. I just want to set that out there, right quick. Uh, I did that years ago, uh, going back to the 1960s. So for me, as an elder today, when I look back at what these younger folks are not doing and what they're buying into, I just scratch my head. Like, what we did back then was it for naught? They want another planet. I don't know where they're coming from, many of them. But be that as it may, the, the latest important thing from a psychological, sociological perspective is that the city of New Orleans has agreed that names and statues and monuments to the Confederates have to go. Psychologically, that's a win win. It is now incumbent upon us Which is what we all Not all of us But a good bit of us are doing Is suggesting names of Individuals From New Orleans Primarily Who should be on at those spots Where the Confederate generals Are no longer hoisted And seated atop pedestals And that's a good thing Uh, When one looks at And what happened in New Orleans, for example. And and again, gentlemen, I can only speak for my town, and I would never try to speak for someone else's town. But an example would be I'll give us some relevant examples of that which we're speaking of today. Though we may not agree with Harriet Beecher Stowe as she wrote the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, I think most of us, if we've not read it, we've seen it. The image of Uncle Remus, in fact, was a sculpted piece known as Mr. Tiff that was sculpted in collaboration with Harriet Beecher Stowe with an Afro Creole German Jewish sculptor, Eugene Wahlberg, who was born in the middle 18th century, who met her at Luxembourg. That is the image that, that one would see. On the cover of her book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And that sculpted piece again is in Worcester, Massachusetts, but it was sculpted by a fellow of African ancestry from New Orleans. Just at the beginning of black and white photography and lithography came to us from an Afro Creole born in France who relocated 1839 to New Orleans. He brought the Daguerreotype black and white photography. With him to his city. We've had so many first, but then we've been pushed out. One of the guys we suggested is Norbert Ridieu. Norbert Ridieu was Edgar Hilaire Dugard, a French impressionist, the second cousin. But that connectivity comes from the mom and his mom, whose ancestors came in from Haiti after the revolution. Noble Redu was a scientist, engineer, inventor who invented the vacuum process, which is still being used today in many sugar refineries, including in Nevada, Cuba, to process granulated sugar from sugarcane juices. And he was of African ancestry. You don't find his hook in our history books. His, his, his pattern, the schematic, it's all over the Internet, but not taught here where it was served the most purpose. And these are good things because it has given us an opportunity to speak about the first black governor in America. It sure happened during Reconstruction, but it happened. PBS Pinchback, the first black lieutenant governor, Oscar Dunn, was bought out of slavery by his father, became lieutenant governor of Louisiana. And these are the folk who we are suggesting, quote, unquote, to our folk who are seated on this commission and this committee to consider places these folk in probably places around the city so our kids, as well as their children, will understand that, yes, we have been at this table for an awful long time. Going back to the Revolutionary War, we're suggesting Richard Allen, Bishop Richard Allen, who was the founder of the A.M.U. Church in Philadelphia. He also was an organizer of a regiment of 2,500 freemen of color to fight against the Brits during the Revolutionary War. Folks talk about his AME relationship, but they talk about his military prowess. For a man who was born into slavery to buy himself out of slavery, become a minister, found a religion, and fight in America's revolution and nobody knows his name, and I'm speaking of us. That's crazy. And this same thing really should be going on around the country, especially those cities which predominantly are heavily Afrocentric, I'm certain there's more of this history that needs to come out. And that's what's going on here in New Orleans, here in my neighborhood of Treve, and we're just trying to make it happen, keep it real. And share the history and culture of our town.
2: We Thank you, my brother, for that update of what's going on in your world, the community. Just for everyone involved tonight in the program, I would like to get your response in terms of the narrative that's being played out as it relates to trying to drive African people to take these upcoming vaccination shots as it deals with the pandemic. Where are y'all on this thing, and why is it all of a sudden now they, they've had Africans in front of the camera and tell their people they think we should take these shots? Y'all response to this particular phenomenon? We are now more important than ever before. What do y'all make now,
5: of this? Let me go first because I'll, I'll be very brief.
2: Hey, good, Brother Abbott.
5: The person and his or her physician should make that decision. I'm not, I'm not a medical person. I don't know enough about it from a medicinal perspective. I do understand, clearly understand, how we all are only speaking about the Tuskegee experiment. And I don't know whether or not you all were privy to the conversation with the Surgeon General, uh, Gerald, uh, Mr. Uh, Surgeon General Adams, when he took it beyond what most of us only knew that black men went, were injected with, with, with syphilis as an experiment and they were tracked for 15 years over so many years. Yes, they would play like a piano, but what eventually came out of that was a cure for syphilis. It was wrong for what they did because they could have, they should have done it to themselves and not he's in Alabama. But a person who has to make the decision whether or not they were to roll the dice on this virus and speak with his or her physician and meaningful conversation about the pros
3: and cons. That's my two yeah, well. Yeah, well the, the brother's correct, rolling the dice is uh I think it's an appropriate, uh apropos uh, uh statement. Uh you know, one of the things you know uh got me so much concerned is that, you know, recently as she lives to Brother Africa, they've been rolling out uh, you know, um um black uh, African scientists and doctors. Well, those are very interesting, I mean, in America, to acknowledge the achievement of African people is, you know, something that doesn't come very, very lightly. And for them to actually say that uh, African woman was responsible in part in terms of the innovation of, of the vaccine, I'm like, huh, this, this, is, this is all very interesting. But more importantly, though, I think, well, just that's important, I think one of the things is that when they say it's 90% effective, and then they reneged on that, that estimation, it uh, gave me pause for concern. Uh, one of the things, just in terms of science and in terms of medicine, and when, when you start talking about percentages, you know, uh, in, in, in terms of research, one of the things, you know, when you start talking about something that's 89% effective, then what you're saying is that it's not really effective. Because uh, see, it seems to me that when you talk about vaccines, is it effective or it's not? For instance, when you talk about the flu vaccine, it says it's only 50% effective, which means that it works on 50% of people and 50% of people don't work. It doesn't work on it also means that 50% of people who take it uh, will get some, some relief where uh, 50, 50% of the, of the population who take it don't get any relief. So it, so it seems to me that there's, there's these terms and these percentages that go around in nebulous. It doesn't make any sense to me. And then when they came out and said that you know the percent that we've been touting, we, found we, we, we we were a bit disingenuous because what happened was that we were talking about uh, people you know uh, under 17. Well, then you're talking about a very young population who many suspect is not as prone to, to COVID-19 as older older individuals are. So for me, you know, rolling the dice is, is, is I think it's, it's about as it's best you can you can interpret it, because you know I it, think like, like the brother said, it's up to the individual decide if they want to do it. Um, you know, I'm not going to say one way or the other. You know, but but I'm I'm suspicious in terms of this particular vaccine. You know, and I prefer to wait and and, and to observe and see what happens. Because one of the things I always advocate, uh, you know, I said listen. Uh, you know, you know we got diff- we got different vaccines in different parts of the world. Why don't we take those vaccines and vaccinate the wealthiest people in society? Let's let's, let's, see, let's let's vaccinate them first and let, you know, let's give us an opportunity to over a cup over a period of months to observe the response because right now uh, there, as recently as, as um, two weeks ago there were four individuals who came down with neurological problems associated with the vaccine. Now, there are are, are four additional people who came down with neurological problems in terms of the vaccine. So I'm like, hmm, very, very interesting. I'm always mindful of the fact that the sister who was a a doctor, a medical doctor, and I can't can't recall her name. Anyway, she left for Panama. I wish I could recall her name. I'm going to find that name. Anyway, she left for Panama. One of her dire warnings before she left, she said, I'm not coming back to this country. She said, I'm going to tell you what. When they innovate vaccines, she said, do not take them. Do not them. She was emphatic about that. She said do not take them. She said that uh, they're gonna have huge problems for your immune system. She said, Please and she this is all planned, they all know it. She said, Don't take take them And she got in the plane, she left from Panama and she had them look back. So clearly Brother Africa, you know, it's up to the individual to make their own choice in terms of how they're gonna receive. For me, I'm very, very suspicious, I'm very cautious, and I prefer to, to, to wait and see what happens. I would love if they would inject wealthy people first you know, with the vaccine so we can observe what happens.
5: I agree with you. Let the wealthy folks take the shots first, and let's watch them. And if they're crawfish, we know that something is wrong.
2: No, you they say you can't do it. that. No, they say you can't do that. The deal going to be the nurses, the patients who are in these um, elderly homes will be the first participants.
5: A lot of folks in the elderly homes are very wealthy, especially in Southern Florida. <laughs>
2: Let's just say. I, I I thought it was interesting uh, for D. R. Uh He sent out a video the other day, where some of these top officials supposed to have been receiving their shots, and he documented um, on the video where it, Receiving these shots was a scam. They never got them. Um, the people who were getting the shot, they wasn't as as they wasn't they not a good actor in terms of knowing how you objectively give someone a shot. And you can see through his video that he did not receive a shot. It was a deception to the public to give you um, a picture that they received it. But I do think that we do have history that we must use as a guide. And I do find it ironic that um, um, we deal with the same forces who wanted to and still want to uh, exterminate lives of African people. and need the same forces telling you to take something that they created, and we know nothing about what's in the material. I think at some point in time, we got to use our historical collective memory and also use our common sense if you begin to add 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 and come up with 100, something's wrong with that picture. So I think that um, as we talk about this is an individual decision, I also would like to add, I think there comes a time where African people need to come together as a group and make certain decisions at least as a minimum to give at least some kind of guidance to our people. Because many times, you may make a good decision when you act as an individual, but you make the best decision when you act as a collective. So that would just be my response to the phenomenon. I can say I will not be taking it not unless they force it. And I don't understand some this discussion on a forcing people to take these shots by means of coercion, for example. Many employees are talking about now forcing their employees to take the shots. If they want to keep that job. What's up with that? Many public housing authorities are talking about making their residents take th- these shafts. If not, they'll be evicted. What's up with that? So at some point in time, I think we need to speak truth to power and be honest too. At this point in time, these behaviors can't be accepted. So that's just my response to that.
3: That's good point, Brother these, Africa. You can
2: Yes, yes, Brother
3: Hackey. No, that's a good point that you raise. Uh, you, 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 you can't separate the history and the politics. I mean, the, the, the two are congruent, and I, uh, I, I think that when you look at the history in terms of the motivation, in terms of uh, undergirds of doing what's right, oftentimes turns out, turns out to be doing all wrong. So you, you got to be very, very careful about that. Uh, you know, it, it would be ideal if we somehow we could convince people, you know, our uh, people as a group you know, you know, to move as a group. But it's a very difficult endeavor, uh, you know. Um, so, so anyway, I think ultimately it's going to come down to individuals on how to make a decision in terms of, you know, what they're going to do. But certainly, you know, I, I agree there's grounds to say that, you know, uh, suspicion is warranted in terms of, you know, those particular viruses. And then there's this coercion that you talked about, Brother Africa. You know, I think that's, 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 that, is, that is interesting, you know. In order to keep your job, you're going to take the shot. You want to keep the public housing, you're going to take the shot. Uh, it's very very interesting, and one of the things that politically speaking, when you start talking about that kind of coercion and that kind of kind of terror inflicted on people's lives, uh, clearly it speaks to the kind of fascism that's so much a part of society. And one of the things that I can be concerned about, you know, as as fascism in American society rises, as fascism of the world rises, uh, one of the things the compulsion to actually uh, um, um, to uh, to dehumanize people becomes greater. So what better way to dehumanize the people than to give them some vaccine that's going to debilitate them or hurt them over over the over, over, the, over the coming future? So clearly, brother Africa, you're absolutely correct. Your 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 skepticism is warranted, and I share with your skepticism. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, my my position is that I wait and see because a lot of these things, like uh, you know, I, I, I don't take. You know, they'd be like, why do you not take the shots? Well, they, you know, in particular food shot, I don't take it because you know you know what. Number one, it seems to me that you have a, a molecular structure of, 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 the, uh, of the flu virus. But what you're giving me, you don't know what the molecular structure of the flu, the flu virus is, but you can give me a shot what you, based on what you think the molecular structure may be. I, I, when, you, when you figure out what the molecular structure of the flu exactly is and you can, and you can create a vaccine that matches that molecular structure, uh, then come talk to me. But until then, I'm not taking it. So clearly, brother Africa, I concur with you. You know, you, we got. We, you know, listen. You know, be very, very careful. Be very, very circumspect in terms of you know decisions that you make with regards those those vaccines.
2: Word to the wives, as public enemy one stated, don't believe the hype. To our listening audience, don't believe the hype. So we listen to Africa on the Moon. This is a first part, a two part series under the theme telling our story. What's yours? We're gonna take a quick break and when we come back, we're gonna get our brother Abby to tell his story as we talk about life in New Orleans, what's going on, what changes have taken place, particularly since the several um, storms and hurricanes have came through the area. Um, i.e. Katrina as one. And if we don't tell our story, who will? So when we come back, we'll focus our attention on Brother Albert telling his story. You ought to listen to Africa on the moon. If
0: you think of the Middle East, In this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land, some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs needs her freedom. Palestine. Needs our love, needs our
1: love
0: Palestine, needs her freedom Palestine, needs our love There seems to be no answer To give us the reason why
5: to the city. That's one group of them. The other group refused to return because they found life was much better where they were appreciated for their abilities and character and earn, and were able to earn more money. Those who did return found themselves now being clustered and a part of the city that's, oh my God, it's like 20 minutes away from downtown concentrated of low-income, low, low income, not low to moderate, low-income, public housing in an area without transportation, and, of course, it's a food desert as well. So if you miss that public transportation, the last bus, you're in trouble. If you don't have any sort of transportation, you've got to walk miles to get to a grocery store, whereas in the city where some of these folk grew up, particularly in my neighborhood, Tremé if you're not earning at least fifty, actually sixty thousand dollars a year, you cannot afford to live here. That's based on the calculation of five times your annual salary suggests the amount of mortgage you could afford, and of course that again is that based on your debt to income. But for starters, if you're not earning sixty thousand dollars a year. And you're thinking of buying a house for $250,000, dollars in this neighborhood, it'll never happen. And most of us post Katrina trying to earn over $30,000 a year, which means they become regulated to $125,000 up to $165,000 house. And in Treme, the average, it would cost you $165,000 if you could find one to buy a vacant lot and would then have to construct the house. That's how things have changed, because of our proximity to the world-famous French Quarter. We're, we're a block apart, a block across the street to get into the French Quarter from Tremé. So folks with liquid, with, who are liquid can afford to spend three, three fifty, forty thousand dollars for a house that would cost seven million dollars five blocks away in the French Quarter, and take the bike and just walk. So a tragedy has made it more tragic for the folk who used to live here and were the cultural bearers of this neighborhood. And unless we change the politics and the mindset that says we need to find ways and means for folk who live here to become gainful and meaningfully employed, we've got a problem until we take the initiative to insist that the education, educational system truly address the inequities, we got a problem. And the folk who we've elected, and I'm going back to it, whom we continue to elect, have done all they could do to give the system back to the folk who once kept us out of it. And therein lies the problem. Straight up Straight no chaser Cannonball Adler
2: hmm. To our panelists Any comments or questions you would like to ask Brother Alvin As related to New Orleans and that region uh, Its current realities And its impact By the various storms and tornadoes That came to Brother Hackey
3: yeah, let me let me ask Brother Alvin. Uh I, I, I hear a lot about the Ninth Ward and um and its proximity to the ocean. Maybe you could enlighten me in terms of what is it what is unique about the Ninth Ward and why is it such a a, a topic of uh, of inquiry for, for, for so many people?
5: Well, uh and I do stand correct but I think what we what you might be referring to is the lower ninth ward. Yes, sir. Yeah, the Lower Ninth Ward historically was a home to folk of African ancestry with about a 73% home ownership. The rest were renters of African ancestry. That neighborhood has not, in bold letters, N-O-T, has not been rebuilt since Hurricane Katrina 15 years ago Most of the folk who lived there Were either longshoremen Postal workers School teachers Another sort of middle class Income group of people Gone Gone But the plan is afoot The idea And and I just like to make a little correction Well, we're not close to the ocean, thank God, but we're very close to all the water. Lake Pontchartrain, the Mississippi River, the Industrial Canal, which cuts right across it. And on the backside, going to another parish, known as St. Bernard Parish, is where the Gulf of Mexico makes a curve surrounded by water. The city has begun to improve the streets, very slowly, and an attempt was made maybe three years ago, and thank God the city, and again, it goes back to you just can't do it when it's public. you got to bring it to the public. The state legislature, and I'm speaking of folk who look like us, I'm assuming we all look like each other, had the, had the unmitigated goal in collaboration with the then mayor To put the sale of these vacant lots Because Katrina forced the home to be demolished They would would destroy Wanted to sell those lots To anyone, private speculators For $100 each Under the guise of It would fuel redevelopment That was a land grab And of course when it came before the public to vote It was voted down. But a check was made for the public to approve the land grab. The public said no; that will not happen. Thank God for that.
3: Let me ask you another question: uh, What's what's the status on the, the corrupt figure Ray Niggins? Oh, I repeat that, please. What is the uh, status of Ray Niggins, the former mayor? He
5: was just he was just released from prison, and no one knows where he is. He, he could be in Texas, because after Katrina, he and his family bought a condominium in Dallas, Texas, so we really don't know where he is. But he's, alone. he's out. Bill Jefferson also is out, a former congressman.
2: And what was the attitude actually of the Thankful. people? How they, how they really view him? I heard his perspective from a public perspective, but from you being a native down there, give us a take on how the people really view him.
5: Well, Megan came in as a fresh breath of air. I guess almost like Donald Trump not a politician, a businessman. And he was trying to play both ends against the middle. And kind of the balancing act, he was, I guess to some degree, was doing a fairly decent job. But he came in hating on the former mayor, which hurt hurt us and Treve. But uh, after Katrina, when he made the statement and broke with, with the folk, and power, The power that be By making this one statement same thing happened to uh, Barry In, in Washington, D.C. Chocolate city And all hell broke loose All the white folk who supported him It was thumbs down When he made that statement This city will always be a chocolate city They showed him Say if it was done to to uh, Barry in Washington, D.C. What, do you say? D.C. would be a chocolate city? They set him up. busted him in the Virgin islands. Went to jail. Says they have the name. Sad. But that's what happened. The but he has Lord been released is- from prison. We just don't know where he is. If he's still in town, he's very, very, very low key.
2: Do you think he could publicly show his face down there now, if he is?
5: He could show his face, but he could never run for any political office again. That's my opinion. The f- folk would not vote for him. he's is dead.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, they say that um, historically speaking, the rich and powerful has always wanted to gentrify their area and find ways to displace the African population down there. Is that narrative a true narrative, and what role did the government play to either encourage that or prevent that from happening? after the Resort of Katrina.
5: Well, Nagin was a part of that. (laughs) Let me me clean this up. Nagin was a part of that because of his public position as a mayor of the city. The city council agreed with the mayor that blighted property, public housing, had to be leveled and reconstructed with a new vision, known as the new New Orleans. And that caused a further displacement of people, of our people. The new construction only requires that 15% of the new apartment complexes be set aside for low-income people. 15%, that's it. So one contractor, one developer, uh, constructed an edifice, With 100 units. So of the 100, only 15 were for low income folks. And you just destroyed a housing project with 900 people? Where's the logic in that? There is no logic. And bear in mind, and again, it goes back to where did this come from? It came out of the Congress, the law was passed. Affordable housing. But when you allow developers to write the program, they write themselves in and write other folk out. Like 15-year bonds, and that's it. No more, no more commitments to low income. Everything is market rate. I tried the warning. They looked at me and said, "Man, you got to be crazy." Okay, watch. And it happened. The 13-year. The developer who. Constructed a renovated property sold out to a group out of New York so his hands were clean when the 15 years came up two years later and those senior citizens who were living in those apartment, comp- the apartment complex were forced to, vac- to vacate had to leave one guy in the city received pretty close to 150 properties from the mayor's office and with the blessing of the city council I'm not going to put all this on Renegan. the city council concurred with with that proposal that's a lot of land to give to an individual developer and his or her only cost would be twenty five to thirty five hundred dollars for a title search some of those lots are selling for fifty to one hundred fifty thousand dollars today and even though the program required that within nine months they would they were scheduled to build obligated to build a a house for a low to moderate income person, many have not that has not been fulfilled across the board. And no one is saying anything. So it goes back to who are you really electing and are you paying attention to what's going on? And then not.
2: Brother Moses
4: Any common question you'd like to raise With Brother Abbott oh, I don't really have any questions At the moment I, um, We have to keep up the struggle That's all I can tell them Thank you
3: I have one quick question Brother Africa One quick question
4: mm-hmm. Alright
3: uh, this is some speculation, but uh, Brother Alvin can, 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 can sort of provide some clarity for me. It was speculated it was uh, that those levees uh, during her training with Katrina were actually uh, came as a result of an explosion. Any truth to that?
5: Uh, for me to say yes, it meant that that was part and parcel to it. But I would like to say, answer it this way. Uh, there's credible evidence that that could have happened.
2: Hey, the continue. Of,
5: it, it, forgetting about putting the, the explosion aside, the mere fact that the primary breach at the levy came about as faulty construction where a contractor used newspaper to stuff pilings, and nothing happened to that contract. As a matter of fact, they were awarded a significant contract for more construction. That's hmm. a part of the public record.
2: Can you repeat that again, make sure I hear you clearly, Brother Abbott? Make that sure. point again.
5: The, the, the primary breach of the levy system, the primary breach, was called by faulty construction by a heavy construction contractor. Once investigation had taken place, it was determined that this contractor used newspaper to stuff the concrete pilings that had been installed by his company, which gave rise to the breach. It was felt to construction. And he was awarded by the Corps of Engineers with the larger contract to do more construction. And again, that's part of the public record. That is a part of the and public so- record.
2: That's something totally new to me. I've never heard of heard that particular story, that particular um, aspect of Google that reality. The 17th, Google,
5: Google the Seventeenth Street Canal breach, Hurricane Katrina. Seventeenth Street Canal breach, Hurricane Katrina, and read it for yourself.
2: Now, what was your understanding based upon what may have been shared with you as? This phenomenon, Katrina, took place, and the behavior of the official police force, in terms of maybe participating in activities that may have caused harm to its residents, particularly African people. What do you know of that reality?
5: I only know what other folks well that that which is on the news,
0: mm-hmm. and the one mm-hmm. that was
5: highlighted was a young man who was murdered by. Police officers who said he felt threatened. Uh, he was decapitated, and the car was set afire. And the mother only asked that the son's head be returned for proper burial. That has not happened.
2: Was it, was it true that many officials officials resigned and refused to do anything as it relates to the official capacity to serve and protect the community? Um, oh, you yeah. To make sure.
5: Sure, it happened. And, they and moved they to the how you you? Of counties. They moved to the counties which are close to to the audience and they were employed in those other other counties.
2: So when you write the story on this phenomenon, what lessons can we learn from it? What would you say? <laughs> what are some of the lessons?
5: <laughs> you know. I've got to answer you the way I really feel, man. And until we start playing games with ourselves, thinking that that things will change, those 73 million people voted for Donald Trump made it very clear. You're not a citizen. We'll never recognize you as being a citizen, and we're not about to change. And until we really embrace and understand that unless you're willing to suck it up, Suck it up and go back to where you want it. That's Africa. Pick the country and tough it out the first generation. But your, your kids and grandkids will be better for it. We can sit here accepting kibbles and bits. And, yes, some of us will live extremely high on the hog. But the masses will not. The masses will never. I live two blocks from a local elementary school, one which I attended for, for several years. Four months ago, I spoke via telephone with the principal, and the name of the school has been changed from one black statesman to another, Homer Plessy. And if you guys are not familiar with the name, Homer Plessy, Homer Plessy was an octoroon as a 1-8 African, 7-8 European who was arrested in the now famous or infamous Plessy versus Ferguson case, which gave this country Jim and segregation. In 2020, 7th and 8th grade kids are reading on a 3rd and 4th grade level in 2020 where where do you think they're going next year or year after where can they go but on the streets and survive and we collectively are allowing this to happen can not speak for Baltimore Chicago Newark Camden I wouldn't even try to. I can speak about no audience. We have a problem. And we have to stop blaming it on someone else and look in the mirror at our as Michael Jackson said, look in the mirror. Those are our children and our neighborhood schools who are functional illiterate before they really get started in life. Now they can play the hell out of video games, but that's all they use those computers for. The mind is gone, and, and we collectively have allowed that to happen. We should not have children in 2020 in 7th and 8th grades reading on the 3rd or 4th grade level. That should not be happening. But it is.
2: You know, when you think of New Orleans, we talk culturally, we think about the art form and jazz. Can you talk a little bit about jazz and its influence in the area? And talk a little bit about, I understand earlier you said you, you have a jazz museum. Can you tell people something about the museum and how we can support it? Yeah, of course. Uh, COVID has
5: been uh, closed down now, but uh, yeah, I was able to weather the storm, and open a jazz museum in 2016 against the odds because I'm not a part of that system, but I don't have to be. This is my dream, and I bought the building, and, and we opened. And we tell the history of, of jazz instruments, people, from a cultural perspective as well. And we connect the dots on so much of this museum with the with the the tour, it makes the average person shake their head and and ask themselves, where has this information been all these years? As we spoke about earlier, when I mentioned the harp, the harpsichord, pianoforte, you ask the average European, they'll tell you the harp probably came from Vienna, Austria, came from Egypt. The violin, which came out of the lute, or the lira, they'll probably say that was Germany. It's in the Bible. Go ye forth and make a joyful noise with the lute, or the lira. came from Nubia, which is Sudan today, the land of Kush. All the way across Africa to the west side, where the percussions came from primarily but into the Caribbean first and that's the story we tell Canary Islanders who also inhabited Cuba did not have percussion that came from Africa from West Africa and enslaved the people. Percussion still control music today the beat it's the drum.
2: Average, so when we talk about when we talk about tourism and people want to come down and visit the area, New Orleans, where should they go in reference to areas that would benefit um, the African community and help to create maybe some kind of business sector that would help that people become self-sufficient? Where would we go? Where, where, where should we go? What would be your recommendation?
5: The last place I'll start negatively. The last place they should go to. Is the French Quarter (laughs) And the sad commentary Tremé should be the first stop Rampart Street Which used to be a rampart Back in the olden days Which divided the city The French Quarter was known as The city where I am in Tremé Was known as Back of Town At the back of the French Quarter But this is what a culture is And of course Bear in mind, we elected our first black bear in 1979, 41 years ago. But the amount of music being played in Treve at that time has been reduced to four nightclubs. Four, but those clubs have live music. And on Fridays, good seafood and potato salad. So this is where they would... Who want to come to the Tribby neighborhood. they find the likes of Trumbo and Shorty who has made a name for himself. This is his neighborhood. He still lives around there and performs his two brothers. Crumb and Ruffin with the rebirth, Grammy with brass band. Kerman has his own nightclub, Cubit Ruffin's mother in law lounge what he bought from the estate of Ernie Cato, who sang mother in law. So there's still some clubs not many, but there's still about four or five really nice
2: clubs in the neighborhood where folks can sit down with an adult crowd. Can you say so, something yeah. of their name so folks who hear this program, they will know. And what about closing, yeah, any particular hotels they should target that would be beneficial for our community down there?
5: Uh, there's one known as the Treme, N-T-R-E-M-E, N-I-N-N on Ursuline. That's owned by a black couple. Robert Johnson of BET fame. He and his wife own the Hilton, he owns the Hilton Garden in, in the Warehouse District, and his wife owns N-O-P-S-I, the Dopsy Boutique Hotel on Barone Street. They have not opened yet, but there are two more hotels under development that are owned by Black folk. But you, they, you, your listening audience, your listening audience can check with uh, uh, Airbnb Noir N O I R for more specific and updated information, and also with the Black Pages. I'm sorry, the Green Pages, Green Pages, owned by the McKenna's, M-C-K-E-N-N-A. And the McKenna's have a Green Pages directory of all, not as many of the black businesses as those who would sign up. And it's a pretty inf- informative piece of information.
2: Okay, closing out today's topic. Turn up, to uh, call me. Tell him to give me
5: a call. I'll be glad to guide him through it. I'm also licensed to guide.
2: How do we get in touch with you?
5: Five zero four seven one five zero three three two. I also man, have man, two units for Airbnb. In addition to the museum. And so they can are you check me in out of Petite Jazz Museum. Check out my webpage.
2: So you just made yourself a personal guide for our listening audience to come down to New Orleans. Contact Brother Alvin Jackson. We got you. This is so, what,
5: I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I'm, I'm two blocks from Louis Armstrong Park and the Mahalia Jackson Theater. I, I would love to.
2: Okay, Brother Jackson, we're going to give you a few minutes. You'll find thoughts as you tell your story of life in New Orleans. You'll find thoughts to for tonight to listen to one of you. What you like to say that you may have not had a chance to say? This is your time. This has been great.
5: You know, I'm, I'm glad that you reached out to me. Uh, and the brothers are very knowledgeable, and I love, I love engaging in meaningful conversation. Meaningful discourse helps all of us. We don't talk to each other enough. We talk at each other, but we don't talk to each other enough. And I really have enjoyed this conversation, these moments with these gentlemen. And so I want to thank you again, Brother Af- Africa.
2: Okay. And to our listening audience, we'd like to thank you for allowing us to come to your homes this evening where we can speak truth to power and to provide you with some information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. Oh, Original people, and help liberate humanity from all the various forms of oppression. What we're going to do from this part one, next week we'll continue this segment, part two, telling our story, and what's yours. We will continue this next week, same time, same station, and what we're going to do right now, we're going to ask each one of our participants, panelists, and participants, give us their final thoughts for tonight's program. we start with you, Brother Moses, your final thoughts for tonight's Oh, well. yes, thank you,
4: thank you, thank you It's been a great show uh, Very informative I uh, Learned a lot about New Orleans a little bit uh, And um, I hope that uh, We continue to Get delve deeper into Our understanding of the Political forces that we face And how we can best Resist And with that I just say good night Thank you
2: Good night Brother Moses,
3: brother Hackey, your final thoughts for tonight's program? Yeah, I I think brother brother Alvin pretty much underscored the seriousness of the situation we're confronted with. Uh, clearly, you know uh, you know the the wealth uh, are becoming increasingly more wealthy. Uh, the compassion uh, for the people is becoming increasingly less. So we got some problems. So we, we have to wake up and realize, you know, this is not this is not a joke. This is very serious business. As always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to unravel the matrix because uh, it's key in terms of understanding, you know, the nuts and bolts of this society. And without understanding the nuts and bolts of society, it's very difficult to build. But on that note, Brother Africa, you have a good night.
2: And you do the same, Brother Haki. And Brother Abby, you'll find the thoughts for tonight's program.
5: Again, I'm thankful for the invitation. I truly enjoyed it. The brothers again was very informative, and I will certainly tune in next Sunday and listen to your program. it's it's a, It's something that's needed in a community, and again, and primarily because you allow your guests to speak to each other, not at each other. And that's important that we respect each other's space.
2: And Thanks on that again. Novella, and on the yes, Nobel I Avenue, mean, we thank you for your contribution to today's program. And to our listening audience and supporters, remember that we must function as a unit. We must get organized. Organization is a weapon for the oppressed. Africa on the move is a tool just to be used for going down that road to help organize our people. We know that without information, our people cannot think. And we know without organization, they can think clearly and critically. So we encourage our people to do both, get the proper information and become organized. And then you will have the proper tool that can change our reality, unite our people, and help us achieve our final destination, which is the total freedom of Africa and African people. As your host, Brother Africa, we have been in the seat. We have been picking the heat. We did our best to try to find it, and we're going to stand behind it. And we want you to come and join us each week from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Share this with your network and with your friends. And just remember that we must tell our story, because if we don't, who will? This is part one of telling our story. What's your next? We will continue this with part two. Until next time. Like Brother Marvin Gate would say, we want to find out what's going on. We'll see you next week. Forward, Apple backwards Level. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, what's man? Yeah, I brother Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey,
1: There's too many of you crying Brother, brother, brother There's far too many of you die And love For only love can come to him You know we've got to find a way oh, To bring, bring some love into the day, day. Oh, 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 oh Pick it flat And pick it back
7: Don't punish me With fruit
1: I'm yeah. 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 oh, yeah. yeah. not Everybody thinks You're the you Would this thing? you i have It's not. Yeah.
4: a negative attitude towards Africa. In San Francisco, on African Liberation Day, Brother Walter Rodney, an African historian, noted both the importance of African Liberation Day in terms of our African identity and some of the root causes for our problem of identification.
8: I have met brothers and sisters who say that their mother town, quote-unquote, is French, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese as well as English which we speak. And because of this, we have a problem of identification. We do not know whom we are and that is why this gathering is of great symbolic importance because it is an act of identification. We are saying that we identify with the African people of the African continent. We are saying that we are an African people. and When we make this identification, have no illusions about the fact that this is a very revolutionary initiative. It is a rejection of every other form of identification which the white society has asked us to accept. Let me draw your attention to something which white universities and white libraries practice. And this is a university community, numerous universities lie around this land. Go into their libraries and check the Library of Congress card under Europe or Europeans. You will find all entries listed concerning the continent of Europe. You will also find entries listed about Europeans in East Africa, Europeans in North Africa, Europeans in Asia and Australia. Look under the Chinese, you will find entries listed not only for mainland China, but for Malaysia and for the Chinese in, in, the, in North America. But look under Africa and the Africans, the only entries on the Africans relate to the continent it- itself. There are no entries on the Africans overseas. There is no such category. Africans who have been raped from the continent mysteriously disappear and become Negro. Ah-ha!
1: Michael, eles não ligam oh, don't worry, they don't pra really gente. don't worry, people say we not <laughs> uh <laughs> the winter, winter in America, Yeah, that all of the heroes, have been killed, sent away, yeah, but the people know, the people know.